Hi, everyone. You are listening to Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. This is a super special author episode. I have the pleasure of interviewing American author Rebecca Mackay, perhaps most famous for The Great Believers. She's also written two other novels, a short story collection, and today we're talking about her latest novel, I Have Some Questions For You, which if you are a regular Cool Story listener, you would remember me absolutely raving about approximately two months ago. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your time. Uh, Rebecca has generously agreed to read the prologue to her extraordinary novel to kick us off. All right. You've heard of her, I say. A challenge, an assurance. To the woman on the neighboring hotel bar stool who's made the mistake of striking up a conversation. To the dentist who runs out of questions about my kids and asks what I've been up to myself. Sometimes they know her right away. Sometimes they ask, wasn't that the one where the guy kept her in the basement? No, no, it was not. Wasn't it the one where she was stabbed in? No. The one where she got in a cab with different girl. The one where she went to the frat party, the one where he used a stick, the one where he used a hammer, the one where she picked him up from rehab and he, no. The one where he'd been watching her jog every day, the one where she made the mistake of telling him her period was late, the one with the uncle, wait, the other one with the uncle? No. It was the one with the swimming pool, the one with the alcohol in, with her hair around, with the guy who confessed to write yes. They nod, comforted, by what? My barstool neighbor pulls the celery from her Bloody Mary, crunches down. My dentist asks me to rinse. They work her name in their mouths, their memories. I definitely know that one, they say. That one, because what is she now but a story? A story to know or not know. A story with a limited set of details. A story to master by memorizing maps and timelines. The one from the boarding school, they say. I remember the one from the video. You knew her? She's the one whose photo pops up if you search New Hampshire murder, alongside mugshots from the meth-addled tragedies of more recent years. One photo, her laughing with her mouth but not her eyes, suggesting some deep unhappiness, tends to feature in clickbait. It's just a cropped shot of the tennis team from the yearbook. If you knew Thalia, it's easy to see she wasn't actually upset, was simply smiling for the camera when she didn't feel like it. It was the story that got told and retold. It was the one where she was young enough and white enough and pretty enough and rich enough that people paid attention. It was the one where we were all young enough to think someone smarter had the answers. Maybe it was the one we got wrong. Maybe it was the one we all, collectively, each bearing only the weight of a feather, got wrong. Thank you. I found that when I read that, I just went, boom, here I am. This is what <laughs> we're going into. It was so affecting, immediately oh, gripping. I'm glad. Yeah. Can you introduce us, for people who haven't read the book yet, what do we know about Bodhi, our main woman, when we start? Right. I mean, she's 40 years old. She uh, is a podcaster who talks about the history of film, the history of women in Hollywood, and she also is a film professor. She lives in California. She's got kids. She's very much in control of her life. But she's been invited back to teach for just two weeks in the dead of winter at her old boarding school in New Hampshire. And this is a place where she was quite adrift as a student, quite out of place as all students are. This is not an unusual situation. And so she's going back there and she is starting to get pulled a bit between her present self and her past self. Beautiful. 
I want to bolt right out of the gates here and ask a question about authorial sort of or, or protagonist perspective. It's quite rare to have a book that either sometimes or often is in second person. Mm -hmm. And there was just the most gripping, extraordinary way where sometimes I have some questions for you goes into and what I've described as an accusatory second Mm -hmm. person. Is that writing on hard mode? (laughs) And was that sort of, was that always a part of it? This, this very compelling sort of accusatory tone? No, it wasn't. I knew all along, you know, so she... The thing on her mind when she goes back is the death, the murder of one of her classmates in 1995. And it's a case that she's going to be increasingly drawn back into, wondering if it was correctly solved. There's someone in prison, but she's not sure it's the right person. And I did know all along that there would be a teacher at the school, a male teacher, who would be very much on her mind as someone who, in retrospect, had been behaving problematically and should have been looked at more. And I had a lot worked out about him. I I really I knew, you know, who I wanted him to be, but I didn't quite I didn't quite have that tone yet. And what happened was I, you know, when I finally really started writing, I I got to the end of the second well, really the first chapter cuz the the first chapter after that prologue, um, and just found myself kind of turning and writing in the second person, just a few sentences there. And it it felt right. This person is on her mind. It's the person, you know, in certain situations in life, you have that internal monologue that's directed at someone. Very much so. You can't hear it, (laughs) right? We all know that mode. And this would be the person. And I realized when I put the word you on the page, although the reader understands this is about Mr. Block, the music teacher, you see the word you, and it does include you, the reader, in some maybe just even subconscious way. Mm. It's so good. It's not always in that because I think that, well, I can imagine that if it was etern- perpetually in that mode, it could grate after a while. Oh, absolutely, but, yeah. But when it does come through, it's it's extraordinarily powerful. It feels very direct. So this is a boarding school novel. Which Talk talk a little bit about boarding school novels in general and I suppose about your life living on campus, (laughs) which for Australian listeners is sort of sounds a bit unusual. Yeah. And I'm in particular interested in hearing, I suppose, if there were any conventions of the boarding school novel format that you went with or any you wanted to subvert. Well, I'll say, I think it sounds just as unusual in the U.S. Oh, okay, I get good. a lot of strange looks <laughs> when right. that comes up. Yeah, essentially. So here's the story. I was a day student at a boarding school when I was a teenager. I was a scholarship kid. I you know, went away to university, Was did graduate school, was living on the East Coast. I met my husband and dragged him back to the Chicago area. And the, he was a teacher. And the school where he got the job was my old boarding school. We've lived there for 20 years um, on campus. A lot of the faculty live in apartments attached to dorms. That's our situation or houses on campus. You would never know. If you teleported into my apartment, you'd never know. It's a three-bedroom apartment. It's very nice. we got a basement. There's one door that opens onto the hallway of a dorm of international teenagers. Um, <laughs> That's wild. Yeah, yeah. It's not, I mean, you know, I don't have any responsibilities. I don't work there. Sometimes I can hear them a little bit, but that's that's it. They were great babysitters. When my kids were young, my kids had babysitters from around the world. Now my older daughter is uh, in her second year there. So it's it's been an amazing place to raise kids. It's a very cool life. I do love a boarding school novel. I think a lot of people do. Oh, yeah. And Right? I think there's so many things about it. One is... It is that like hothouse, 
isolated cast of characters, right? It's also that you're writing about people at this really transitional time in their lives, more so than, say, a university novel, right? And also just that contrast of maybe the, you know, the the old, beautiful, storied place. And then these kids who are there just for four years passing through so quickly, but it's so foundational to their lives. I love a boarding school novel. I love a boarding school movie. Almost always there's something that someone's getting wrong that really irritates me. Oh, like what? Oh, my God. You know, simply because sometimes it's the entire vibe of just like you know, kids running around completely unsupervised. Oh, sure, yeah. Like, ah, that's not really, no. <laughs> that school's going to be out of business very fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes it's it's simply, and it, sometimes it's vibe in other ways where it's like, it feel they, they've they've essentially portrayed it as the 1950s. Um, you know, everyone's wearing little sweater vests and it's very, very white and it's very, very rich. And a responsible boarding school is an incredibly diverse place now. It's not that kind of dead poet society vibe that people think of. I also, this is not anything anyone gets wrong. It just cracks me up that in any movie about a boarding school, it's always autumn. Like the, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the leaves are always orange. Yeah. It's very, it's lovely, right? And also when it's film and TV, they always, I mean, I, I don't know if it's for labor law reasons, but they always have to have growth adults playing teenagers. Oh, completely. And it just it yes. makes everything so much more sexy and romantic because yes. none of us were that developed. That, right. <laughs> no, you look at these actual kids and they're so little. Yeah. You know, the freshman boys, oh my God, they're <laughs> they're children. They're just little things, of, you know, that it, it doesn't really matter, but it's, you know, kids who have, um, you know, some first year student who has their own single suite and you're like, yeah, that's not, <laughs> that looks great on TV, but that's not the way it's going to work. Also, you know, that certainly the faculty life is very much misrepresented as, you know, I think, I think in anything, any movie, any book about a school environment, everyone went to school, right? But not everyone knows the faculty side of things. Mm. And what you, what people remember from the, the student side of things is that the students were the center of the universe. Oh, yes. And clearly the faculty had no lives of their own and no. must have simply been obsessed with the students all day. Yes. <laughs> and they ceased to exist when they were beyond the perception right. of the student body. Yes. Right. And um, although this, you know, this only focuses somewhat on the faculty side of things, um, getting that in, I think it's a fascinating world, the way these faculty live in essentially a gated community for much of their lives together. Um, I think that's really interesting. So, you know, I love all those things about it. I was aware of kind of, you know, participating in some ways, in many ways in that genre, and of course also the genre of the murder mystery. Um, neither of them was something I was terribly interested in as a genre. I was much more interested in just a realist story about, okay, what what does happen on a boarding school campus and, you know, what does happen in a solved murder where there's a lot of talk now about possibly wrongful incarceration. I'm not rejecting those genres by any means, but they're not what's guiding me or my decision making, with the exception of given that I have a murder mystery, you have to know by the end what happened. Yeah, that's the, the promise is fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. My reading of this book is, oh, I just want to say first, something you mentioned about the hothouse of yeah. the boarding school. For anyone listening who's not yet read the book, I found it such an extraordinary way to both have lots of different places where action takes place and that Bodhi, our protagonist, is both, um, obviously she's 40 years old now, but she's thinking back in time to when mm -hmm. she was attending school. And you have this recurring feature, I suppose, where Bodhi goes to a physical place, like a geographic location on the school grounds, and it can be 
like a whole area in the sort of woods nearby, or it can be like a very specific pocket of the library that she remembers and thinks about what has and hasn't changed during yeah. that time. And I just found it such an extraordinary tool to really amp up, I suppose, what people might consider the literary fiction side of things in terms of deep existential questions and character development. Mm. And it was just really beautiful. Thank you. My reading of this book is that Bodhi herself is a, God, he is slightly unreliable narrator <laughs> <laughs> to the extent that she, again, this is just my reading, but that she may be lying even to herself mm. about her real motives in returning mm-hmm. to the school, or at least sort of part of her motives in returning to the school and how she encourages her students. So she's there for this um, special short, these short courses, one mm-hmm. of which is the podcasting course. Um, and she encourages the students in her course to make a show. Um, mm-hmm. That's the, you know, this sort of premise. I wanted what I want to know for you is that there is like a sort of, there's another version of this novel where it's just Bodhi decides to go back and make her show. Right. Why, what does it give us, what does it add to have this complicating level where yeah. it's her maybe fibbing to herself or right. not being truthful to herself, doing it through as like using the students as a conduit mm-hmm. slash exclu- excuse? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I wanted someone who could be uh, – destabilized, right? I didn't want someone kind of, I think in in early drafts, I had, she had a lot more agency, a lot more direct kind of, you know, coming in, knowing who she was, knowing what she wanted and pursuing this. And there there just wasn't a lot of room to change her then as a character. Mm. Bringing her in, you know, largely at the beginning of the book, she really does believe the right person's in prison. She just has, you know, some lingering subconscious unanswered questions about what happened. Starting there, I had so much more runway for her. But I couldn't start her there if she's the one going, I'm going to make a podcast, right? I can bring her along into revelations, understanding, admitting what she hadn't wanted to look at directly before. And she can go on quite a journey. Uh, well, I, I have to be careful about spoilers here, yes, but I'll say, yeah, no spoilers. <laughs> I'll say that if I'd started her further down that path of feeling like she knew something was wrong and feeling like what she knew was wrong, then uh, you're going to expect that she's going to stray from that. Yes. Right. You're waiting for the change. Yeah. Right. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'll, quite cryptically. Real but good. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, but also, you know, I think that that is such a realistic place to be where you just, you know, certain things that maybe you could be a help on. You don't feel like it's your place. You don't feel like that's your story. You worry that people will think you are overstepping. If you weren't the central character, what right do you have to come in and say, hey, something was wrong here? And I was also interested in, you know, this is someone who thinks professionally about systems of oppression in Hollywood and, and, uh, you know, inclusion and exclusion and abuses of power, but has not really allowed herself to look back and think in that same way on her own life or on the systems she might have actually been part of early on. Mm. Yeah, I I found it very effective how there were a couple of or a few times it was sort of peppered throughout the um, these devastating histories of the Hollywood stars that she's researched yeah. for her podcast. Right. And it really brought home what's the podcast's name? Like the podcast Oh, star- her it's called um, Starlet Fever. Starlet Fever, that's which right. I didn't name myself. So <laughs> that's fantastic. I, someone else came up with that. But it really hit home the 
the devastating truths behind these sort of household celebrity names yes and the lack of what the lack of originality or the lack of difference in what then actually just happens to regular everyday women yeah yeah that was something I it was hard to edit myself down because I went down these rabbit holes oh I can imagine right? they're like 20 times as many stars yes <laughs> yeah well and the um the one and I'm, suddenly I'm blanking on who it is she's researching there was a uh, Rita Hayworth. It's Rita there. Hayworth. That's it. That's right. the one that. Yeah. Oof, yeah. Yeah. Really. Well, and then Loretta Young comes up later with yes. Clark Gable. Yeah. Um, but Rita Hayworth, that was the name. It was. I'm still slightly jet lagged. The name that was leaving me. But um, with Rita Hayworth, you know, I had originally just had so many little chapters about Rita Hayworth spread in, and of course, it's not. It was detracting from the main storyline. But oh my God, there was just so much there. Those are. I mean, they're they're kind of, you know, tragically glamorous stories, but you look back and it's like, God, it's so, it's so ugly when you yeah. actually look at this. Yeah. There's a subplot with Bodhi's ex-partner, the, so the father of her kids. <laughs> I don't have this written down as part of the question, but I love the recurring problem where people keep asking Bodhi who's looking after yeah. her kids. Yeah. Oh my God. Very real. <laughs> yeah, very real. <laughs> and she's like, mm, they have a father. Anyway, <laughs> so Bodhi's ex-partner and the father of her kids, there's this subplot where he gets quote unquote me too mm-hmm. but in this quite murky sort of weird way so she's yeah. apart from him but it blows up on the internet what does that like what did you hope that that subplot might add or achieve right you know for one thing I I needed to complicate things a bit you know because I, I did not want to have a book where it was all about looking back and oh these men did bad things let's hold them accountable that is certainly, you know, this book is set in 2018 largely. I was writing it in 2018, 2019. It was very much the water we were swimming in, oh, continue yeah. to. But, you know, it, it, my job is not to come in with a hammer, you know. And in real life, there was a lot of, you know, people going, oh, well, but what about this one? This one's a little different. I don't I don't have an issue with this one. Mm-hmm. You can't really say that online. So maybe you keep it to yourself or you say it to a friend. I wanted to get that in there and to to complicate things for her, also for me, also for the reader. Um, you know, what is the difference if there's an, a big age gap in a relationship when someone is, say, 17 and a teacher, an adult, 30, 35, versus someone is a consenting adult in their early 20s and someone is that much older than them? What is the difference there? There is a difference. There mm. absolutely is, right? But we get into you know, murky, more, you know, stranger questions. And basically her husband is being accused of a consensual adult age gap relationship where the woman he was involved with feels like there was an imbalance of power, right? Mm. And I intentionally, I really tried to make that situation as borderline as I could. Mm. Um, And it's been very interesting with readers. Um, Readers like age, say, 35 and up, tend to be like, yeah, well, he didn't do anything wrong. What the hell is everyone's problem? And under, say, like 30, going, oh, my God, this monster. How can she possibly defend him, this predator? Go, there's a generational divide there. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I feel like that's the whole point of fiction in particular is to sit in the murky. Exactly. Yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, really good. I suspect it's sort of... Somewhat, as much as anyone can say anything is a universal experience, but, you know, for for an adult to look back at their adolescence and to reassess perspectives and attitudes they had towards just about anything. But I wonder if, do you think that there's something specific 
for those of us who were girls before Me Too and are now women after mm-hmm. Me Too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, you know, I think it was interesting the way we were looking back in particular, not only on bigger traumas, but on quite what might have seemed quite small at the time. The, the things that would have happened in the hallway, say, um, in high school or things, you know, at a party at the, in university or at your first job. There were these, you know, things that people would just be talking about and it would bring something up for me and I'd go, oh, my God, I haven't thought about that in 20 years. And it's so and fucked it's, up. It's really, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I would have, you know, I pretended to be okay with it at the time. I laughed it off. This was normal. People would have looked at me like I was nuts if I said I had a problem with this. And oh, my God. And you especially see that contrast then, you know, when you talk to the younger generation. And this was something I had fun with in the book because she's heading back. You know, she's teaching. Oh, I'm with these, the students. Yes. Oh, I loved that tension. It was fun to write. Yeah. They're just you know, these very earnest Sometimes way so too earnest, earnest right? Yes. <laughs> um, very, you know, sometimes a little self-righteous, yep. very sweet. And, uh, you know, just that that divide, you know, it's, it's one thing to look back and it's another thing to realize. I couldn't even tell these kids what happened because they would look at me like I was a monster for having witnessed this, mm. you know, and you don't, you don't understand what it was like. That was, yeah, it was, it was fun and I had fun with those characters. They were fun. It was fun to write these 17-year-old mm. Yeah, and then in like with with Bodhi and her what sort of peers in age, there's a real difference between, what do I want to say, the vibe of the women who have decided that they want to sit down and stop and look back and decide what they think and feel about things. And then there are others who just can't or don't want to deal with that and just want to keep it in the past right and there them. yeah there is and i'll be careful but there yeah. is a character a, a mm. classmate who shows up late in the book um a woman who really you know might have very vital information about what happened and is just very much keen on you know I'm, i need to look straight ahead i don't need to look back and uh you know kind of a, a late in the game contrast for Bodhi, who has realized that she needs to do that mm. um but, talking, Bo- but, but Bodhi's also the type of person, you know, who's made a career out of right. trying to look back at these right. things. It's yeah. just so interesting. She's she's particularly well equipped to do that. Yes. Even as, you know, you can kind of hold her accountable for not having done it earlier. Like, well, if you're so well equipped, why didn't you do it? And that's kind of, you know, part of part of what I'm doing with her. Um, but she, yes, she's able to do that kind of thinking. Mm. Yeah. When we were talking about your book on the a regular episode of the podcast a couple of months ago, We were talking about true crime in general, and I have some questions for you about that. But one thing a lot of our listeners were wondering, and and my co-host Bridie and I were talking about too, is why women make up the majority of audiences for true crime Mm. content. Mm -hmm. Let's call it that as an umbrella term. And then when you were reading your prologue just now, the word comforted jumped out at me. Yeah. What what what's your theory <laughs> on why? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my overarching theory is I think it's evolutionary. I think that you know, for most of human history, we're in nomadic groups of 140, 150 people. And someone ends up dead under the berry bush you'd better figure out what happened, right? Are those berries poisonous and you should avoid them? Did someone else murder that person and you should kick them out of your 
little traveling band, like you want to know and you need to warn other people and you need to speculate and you need to figure it out. Or at least some people within that group need to be obsessed about this <laughs> and figuring it out, right? And, it, you know, so cut to the modern day, you know, instead of 140 people, we have access to 7 billion mm. stories right on the planet. We have this overwhelm of this kind of information. But I think we still have that instinct of like, I need to figure out, and especially when it's something that you feel like maybe some connection like that, you know, God, that, you know, that is the town that I once lived in. Mm. Or I, you know, there's, there's for some reason, if you if you ask people what are the particular true crime stories that you have latched onto? It's very interesting to see which ones they say. There's usually some kind of kinship mm. to their identity or geography or something, right? And I you know for women where you know you and feel that you are potentially at risk for things like this. And of course, this is I point this out in the book, the majority of homicide victims are men, right? But in terms of you know, for women, it, yeah, on the on the one hand, we don't want to bathe in this stuff every day. On the other hand, understanding the way domestic partner violence escalates or understanding how to, you know, how does someone get themselves out of an incredibly dangerous situation or, you know, and, and of course, that can turn into victim blaming of what did this person do wrong? I'm not going to do that. Mm. But I do think there's something about our own survival, our own instincts. I should figure this out. And if I can figure it out, I'll be comforted because I know that I can somehow stay safe. Mm. And the sort of the relief or the comfort that comes when at least one case is solved. Right. Like, well, yes. at least that person's not out yeah. and about. Yes. Get me. Right. And I think it's the same relief you would feel if there were 140 of you and you caught the guy. Right. Mm. Um, but we're hearing about someone, you know, in Canada and it's like, yes, they got him. <laughs> right. We don't have like this. Is, I don't want we don't have time for this to become a juicy and meaningful conversation about abolition. But I am curious to hear your thoughts about uh, this sort of tension that exists now, because in the book, it's there are no spoilers to say that the, um, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure it's in the blurb, yeah. the man who's currently in jail for Thalia's death is a black man. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, there are very, very long overdue conversations hitting the mainstream about yeah. um, wrongful incarcerations. Right. There's this tension that exists, I feel, at the moment in terms of the sort of Me Too movement and post-Me Too world and also the proliferation of true crime content and media and specifically a lot of the true crime content and media that focuses on potentially wrongful convictions mm -hmm. where we have this valid, righteous desire to see men who have committed violence against women in particular held accountable for their actions and yet simultaneously both America and Australia are yeah. places that criminalize poverty and have systemic racism yeah. baked into the yeah. policing system. Yeah. How do you understand that tension? Yeah. I mean, I don't, which is one of the yes. reasons I want to write about it, right? Yes. I'll tell you this. We had a um, – and I, I'm, I'm not going to represent this perfectly, but um, – kind of a scandal in the U.S. with a, a poetry magazine that had decided to do an issue with incarcerated poets. And everyone, and they, I, I believe, read the poems anonymously and curated them. And everyone was great with it until they realized one of the poets was in there for pedophilia. And there was this sudden like, oh, but we didn't mean that, mm. right? And I get it. Mm. I also... 
Uh, yep. Well, can you? Who's making these rules? Uh, so it gets so complicated. Yeah, it gets so complicated. Yeah, I. I'm as torn as I think you can be in terms of, you know, I I believe that the vast majority of incarcerations in the U.S. are unnecessary, unfounded, and deeply cruel. Do I also believe that someone who's killed 15 women should be incarcerated? Yes, I do. (laughs) And, uh, you know, one of the things that I really got into in this book was the, and that was not new to me, but new to me in its details, was the near impossibility of getting a case brought up for a retrial, even in the face of new evidence. Mm. And um, of course, that's different even state by state within the U.S. Yeah. But even just to, you know, even to, you know, you have to have, you know, the case has to be reopened in some, you know, brought back up. And then there has to be a hearing to get to a retrial. You have to win that hearing in order to get to the retrial. And um, I was working with a wonderful public defender um, in from the state of New Hampshire who was answering all of my legal questions. And early on, I was like, okay, so what are the possible, like, can we get to, can we have this be about a retrial? And she's like, well, in the past 50 years, there's been one retrial for murder in the state of New Hampshire. And she was like, it was, it was my case. I'm very proud of it. One in <laughs> like, 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. It might to, as well not be available. Right, like exactly. Like that's the statistic. Exactly. Yeah. To actually even get yeah. to the retrial, let alone win the retrial, right? So, um, and I, I might be saying that, I might, I might have gotten that slightly wrong, but it was basically that. So, you know, it's like, it, you just go, oh my God, I can't even, you know, uh, it, it, at first you go, God, oh no, this means I can't tell the story I want to tell, which is of course not the main point. Um, but then I go, well, there's a, there's a much more interesting story here. And there's a much more important story here then about this impossibility about, you know, the way you're just going to butt your head up against the wall forever. When my first book came out in 2018, it was a memoir and I had worked in the courts in Queensland in Australia here for a year and then had my own matter go through. And I very much used the public's appetite for sort of procedural crime drama and true mm-hmm. crime as the Trojan horse to get feminist jurisprudence <laughs> into mm. um, people's minds. But that's, I mean, that's nonfiction and that's like a sort of quite specific project. Do you, in with this work, specifically with this book, I have some questions for you. Are you trying to enlighten people on anything or change hearts or minds Or are you sort of not interested in trying to make your art also a site of activism? Right. That's such a good question. I... Um, I think this came up a lot also with The Great Believers, my previous book. It's, you know, it's about the AIDS epidemic in Chicago. In both cases, I went in following story, Mm. right? I just, you know... I mean, in both cases, I thought I was going to write a fun, lighthearted book. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Really, really, oh, yeah. Oh, R.I.P. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like a fun murder mystery at a boarding school, right? And the, the Great Believers started out being about the art world in Paris in the 20s. It was going to be so yeah. fun. And, you know, my own, first of all, my commitment to realism takes me sometimes in some dark directions. Mm. That, you know, I am a very political person. It's just kind of where my interests are going to tend to go. I would never, I think it works, it, it tends to be really a bad idea to head into a novel with points to prove mm. and themes you want to get across and ideas. And I, I see students struggle with that so much because they have these big, powerful ideas 
And you kind of got to make yourself a little dumb going into your book, right? Or it's going to seem really heavy handed. You're going to have puppets instead of characters. So for me, all of my themes, even just the literary ones, not not even political, they they ideally come about really organically. I'm writing the story and then I go, oh, God, you know what this is really about? This is about. Uh... And the same thing happens uh, when things skew political. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going, oh, my God, I learned this thing. I, I, I got to include this. Holy crap. And, you know, I think ultimately, you know, what my novels, what most novels do is have a lot of empathy for people. And if the empathy for the incarcerated, the empathy for people suffering from AIDS, if that is political, if that is activism by the end, I hope that that works. And I think about that as I'm revising. I think about it as I frame the book. I think about it, you know, is this, what is the message of this book? Is this one I like? Am I saying something I actually believe? I do think that writing is activism. I think it can be activism, fiction, you know, included. And yet I think my books would turn out like crap if I went in leading with that. Mm, Yeah. I have two questions left. This is a sort of really perfect follow-on from that. I mean, you've written multiple novels. um, You've written short stories and had many individual short stories published, but also a collection of short stories. You also write essays. I think it's fair to say you are successful enough and at a stage in your career where you could choose whichever format you wanted Mm. to write something in. Why this particular story now and mm. in this format? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the the idea of a boarding school novel was definitely floating around in my head forever. Uh, just given my living situation, people would ask, like, oh, when are you going to write a novel about that? And for me, a novel comes together. I, you know, I tend to have multiple kind of big ideas floating around um, jockeying for position. And a novel comes together when those ideas sort of start to coalesce. Um, I realize, oh, God, like, the, you know, this idea of the boarding school novel could also be this novel about looking back and the Me Too stuff I'm thinking about. And it could also be a murder mystery. And it could all, right? And, and it starts to become one big thing. Like percolates. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or I think about it like a... You know, when you're watching like raindrops on the windowsill and the ones that join together get really big and go down faster, right? Mm. So, you know, in terms of why this was the one I wrote when I did, again, you know, I'm I'm not coming in with any profound thematics on that. It's more that like I had just done The Great Believers, which was very, very research heavy. And I felt like I, I need a break from that. Of course, I ended up doing legal research, but but um, the boarding school part, like R. I, I can, again, I can, yeah. right, right, no, but but most of it, you know, the boarding school part, I'm like, I can do this, you know, I, I know this stuff backwards and forwards, and the Great Believers also was really me writing across difference in many ways, writing about gay men. Bodhi is not me at all, but someone much more, you know, demographically like me, my age, my gender, my sexuality, my race, etc. So it just felt like, okay, this is the, again, I've deluded myself. This is going to be the fun, lighthearted break from... <laughs> you have to delude yourself, though. <laughs> yes. Like start it again. Yes, exactly. Exactly. When I hear women talk about childbirth and how the... Of course. Yeah. That's yeah. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, my final question is just that I'm... I think if I've got the timing right, the book's been out for about six months now. Is that right? It came out in February in the U.S., so actually a bit, a bit yeah. longer in the U.S. Um, has anything or anyone, I suppose, in its reception surprised you? Ooh, good question. It was so fascinating what you said about how um, different readers' ages yes. can really shape their responses to some yeah. of the murky stuff. Yeah. I think one thing that surprised me is men. Um, men continue to surprise. <laughs> this is in yes. a good way, though, in a good way. <laughs> 
men reaching out and in some cases saying things like, God, you know, I, you know, 40 years ago I was teaching and I witnessed something and I didn't tell anyone and I'm really upset with myself and I'm going to go back and do something about it was a was an email I got from an acquaintance. In other cases, it's been like guys I went to high school or college with going, I hope I treated you okay. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, if you're reaching out, I'm sure you're not the problem, sweetie. (laughs) really. Um, Or or saying, God, you know, this made me look back and, and God, I'm, you know, beating myself up. I mean, I'm sure that Me Too had also made them look back. Yeah. But sort of, you know, hearing it as more of a you know, rather than hearing, oh, my God, here's what Harvey Weinstein did. Can you believe it? Really spending 400 pages in the head of a woman who's dealing with this and the weight of it, um, I think, has affected some men in an interesting way. So that's been mm. that. Yeah, I, I, you know, didn't particularly anticipate that. Mm. Well, I guess proof that you don't have to set out with activism as an explicit intent of a novel. For right. It to have for some sure. Yeah. Catalyzing effect for yeah. a lot of readers. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rebecca. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, Rebecca is going on to – do you have more appearances in Australia? Um, Just tonight. And so that's not going to be helpful for the podcast. Um, Um, But for any lucky listeners who are going to Ubud Writers Festival, Rebecca will be there as well. Um, And, of course, we've been discussing her latest release, I Have Some Questions for You, in all good bookstores right now. Thank you. You've been listening to Cool Story with Bree and Bridie, where we talk about our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. We record on Gadigal land. Our producer is Sam Devonport. And you can find us on Instagram at Cool Story Bree Bridie. Please leave us a rating and or a review. It really makes a difference. We really appreciate it. And DM us. What did you think about this episode? I loved it. Want to hear a cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts.